turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Also, if you find one of these little blue journals around and you don't have one, take one of those home with you. This is just the Gospel of John in sort of a journal format, so you can take notes and and take it to your cohorts, etc. Um, there's a there was a sheet of paper. Uh, we're going to get to that in a second. Don't start reading it yet if you haven't already read it. I'm gonna uh, we're going to talk through this uh, together today. Um, but I'm so excited. My name's Dave. Uh, happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, on on weekends like this, we of course think about the sacrifice of men and women over the years uh, who have fought in 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 the wars of this country and. Um, and always when we think about sacrifice, uh, hopefully what it does is it's just a shadow uh, that makes us think about the ultimate sacrifice, uh, which is Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord. And so uh, today we remember uh, those and also remember Christ, and, and that's why we're here. So excited about that, excited to, to look at the person of Jesus with you. As we read this passage, uh, what you'll uh, wonder is what is it about, and there's sort of uh, something uh, that it seems to be obviously about? Is it about healing? And we'll say, uh, perhaps. Um, uh, then you might wonder, because we're going to see this term, the Sabbath, over and over again. Uh, wait, is it about religion? Perhaps. Uh, but ultimately, what we'll see is that it's about Jesus Christ. And every passage of, of John and every passage of the Scriptures points to Jesus Christ. Some passages, it's easier to see that it's about Him. Others, it's not. But every passage of Scripture is ultimately and primarily about Jesus Christ, who is God. God revealing Himself in a language that we can understand. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it's understandable. Understanding God is never easy. But it's possible, and it's incredibly joyful when we learn and know him more deeply. So this passage is about Jesus, and we'll see it's also about religion, it's also about healing, and we'll see how all those things fit together. Now, to start, I wanted to read you something that a a high school friend of mine had posted on Facebook. Uh, Not on Facebook often. Why was I on Facebook? Honestly, I can't remember. I got distracted, and I was on, I think I was going to check an email or something, and I ended up on Facebook, and I'm reading through these, I don't know why, so I said, there must be a reason, so I (laughs) printed out what she wrote, I thought it was very interesting what she wrote, this is an amazing, amazing uh, gal, and she, I won't use her name just because, in case you know her or something, you probably don't, but uh, she was writing about a, a real life change that she'd had, and I thought it was so interesting and revealing, um, to, to this feeling that we all have. Um, there's something in all of us that's seeking after more, uh, seeking after some need to fill our brokenness, uh, to heal us. And I thought it just represented, I think, what a lot of people, uh, maybe you in the room feel, uh, particularly a lot of people in our city, um, feel. So let me read it to you. She said, my heart is beaming as I write this. I'm thrilled to share Sacred Women Collective, Pacific Northwest. I'm excited to share it with you. This is a venture from my heart that I've been building over the past few months. I've had a long, winding journey that led me here, and I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. After nearly 20 years of grinding it out in media and sales here in Seattle, I've jumped headfirst or a graceful swan dive into a new life path. 
I am bursting at the seams with excitement and energy for this new venture, and I have so much to share and love to give. Wellness retreats have been my saving grace since the world stopped in 2020, giving me space to recalibrate, heal, slow down, just enough to listen to the universe's whisper. Well, those whispers keep getting louder and louder until they smacked me in the face this past February. I was laid off along with thousands of others in tech. This was my chance to finally listen to my intuition and heart. And here we are four months later. Wow, oh wow, how bountiful the universe is when you actually listen to it. I have the great honor of partnering with a mentor and founder friend of mine for the Sacred Women's Collective to bring her incredible life-changing retreats to my home in the Pacific Northwest and around the world. The first time I attended one of her retreats, I knew I needed more of her, and this is the key, and her magic in my life. And now I'm elated to be building and creating alongside her every day. This is so much more than a career change for me. It's a life awakening. We need kindness and love and community to heal ourselves. To heal ourselves, our people, and our planet. I will be hosting retreats and sunset circles locally and internationally. Check out my website. You can follow me here. And then she closes with a signature. Come join me on this journey, and let's make magic. And I, and I read this not to be critical in any way. I read this to say this is the state of us all when we realize that we're broken, when we realize that we need healing, we're looking for magic. We need magic. We'll do anything to touch that magic. And the question is, is there any other source of healing? Is there anything to fill the brokenness? Or do we all just need to find some magic? So let's read our passage today and we'll see what the Word of God has to say about magic. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We won't get to the whole story. It's a long passage and Jesus takes an opportunity at the end of this to give a long speech. We'll look at the speech next week, but we get to see the context. Remember, Jesus has just healed the official son up in the northern region of Israel in Galilee, and now he, he's gonna, you're going to see make his way back to Jerusalem. And it does seem every time he comes to Jerusalem, he's looking to pick a fight. We'll talk about that today. So verse 5, or sorry, chapter 5, verse 1 says this. After this, this healing of the royal official son in Galilee, a Jewish festival took place. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda, in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and realized that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one, if you're taking notes, right, no man is actually the word. I have no man 
to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming down to the pool, someone goes down ahead of me. That's the very next thing Jesus says. Get up. Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews, and when John says the Jews, he's talking about the religious elites, the religious leaders. In this case, it's the Pharisees. Said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. Not my fault. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was. Because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Jesus didn't even tell him his name. Well, that's strange. After this, sometimes, sometime later, Jesus found him, that's the man he had healed, in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews, to the religious officials, that it was, in fact, Jesus who had healed him. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So they come and they confront him. Jesus responded to them, quote, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And then Jesus will go on to continue the conversation, and we'll look at that next week. What an interesting passage. Yes, we've got some healing in this passage, that's clear. We had some healing in the passage last week, so we know Jesus heals. So is John just trying to reinforce that Jesus can heal? Yes, We'll come to the healing part of this at the very end. Don't worry. We'll get to it. But it seems like there's another reason why John, the gospel writer, is bringing up this account. John is the only one that brings up this particular story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other uh, biographers of Jesus, don't bring up this particular story. So why is John bringing it up? Yes, there's some healing, but is that the main reason? Yes, we get even closer when we see the connection to the Sabbath and religiosity, But is that the main reason? Only when we come to see both in light of John's biggest desire, which is that you see Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, the one with all authority, do we begin to know what this passage is all about. Okay, so to get there, we have to first understand some things we don't understand. So there's this pool. There's this pool party happening, uh, and it's not 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 a fun pool party. 
Everyone is sick at this pool party. This may be like the next morning after a Friday night in Vegas, that kind of pool party. Low energy. Not a lot of Vegas goers. That's cool. It's a great week for you. So everyone knows this is the place, this is the pool. Think about it in Seattle terms. This is the park where if you go to this park, you understand who's going to be at the park, who's going to be at the pool. So Jesus goes there intentionally. That'll be important. And there's this absurd race happening. What is the race? He doesn't actually tell us much about it. What is the race? Here's, here's what, what's going on. What's happened is there's some combination of folklore that's come to be believed about this pool. And this pool is not far from the temple in Jerusalem. But at this pool, some combination, some alchemy of uh, Hebrew um, angelology mixed with some Greek mythology has come together in this superstition because like once a day the pool will swirl up and there'll be, enter- there'll be like, a, like a current working through the pool and it became believed that an a- God had, would send an angel down the pool to stir it up and the first person to get into the pool once it's been swirled would, would be healed. Now, John is not confirming that this, in fact, is true. He's just wanting you to know why this man is sitting there along with all these other disabled people and why time and time again they try to get to the pool but miss out. This was the folklore that had been built up around this place. But the irony is, that it's never the most broken that find the healing because they're the slowest to get to the pool. So we don't know if healing actually happened here. There's a good chance that the people that were quickest to get there weren't the most sick and so they experienced perhaps some type of placebo effect because they weren't actually that sick. But what else do we have to believe in? except for the magic. In 38 years, this man hoped and waited that he'd get a touch of the magic, and it never came. That's true, isn't it? Often the most broken never find healing. The magic's just not quite strong enough for them. Not so with Jesus. Now, so here's this absurd race. If I do this, then I can be healed. If I'm just fast enough to do these things, then I can be healed. If I just had a little bit of help, then I could be healed. And Jesus is going to come and flip the paradigm up, upside down. Okay, so to see this more clearly, that Jesus is doing something besides just revealing that he can heal, we need to remember what's not in this passage that we saw in the passage last week. So if you weren't here last week, very quickly what I'll I'll tell you is that a royal official came to Jesus 
hearing that he was a miracle worker, and he asked him to heal his son who was dying of of a severe fever. And Jesus says, go, your son is well. And, and John says, the man believed in the words of Jesus. And this is a very important word in all of John's gospel, believed. He believed. And then it says he went home and, and one of his servants met the royal official. And, he, and, the, and the royal official asked, what time did my son get healed? And he said, one o'clock. He said, that's the exact moment. That Jesus spoke his word that he would be healed. And it says he believed. And so his whole household believed. Do you remember this from last week? What is not in this passage? The word believed. The disabled man doesn't believe in Jesus. But he's healed. There's no sort of two steps of Wondering and then believing and then eyes being opened and he's seeing now clearly. Jesus it. No, there's none of that. Never says that this man believed that Jesus was the Messiah or the Son. It just doesn't say any of that. What's the deal? That should be our first sign. Something's different about this healing story. Something else is going on. What is it? What is it? 38 years, Jesus looks at him. There's all these people that Jesus could heal, and he looks at this particular man. I can tell you've been here for a while. You could insert the word even. Do you even want to be healed? And how does the man respond? Look at it with me. I have no one... I have no man, this is verse 7, I have no man strong enough, you could imply here, to pick me up and put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm trying to scratch and claw and pull my way into my salvation, someone goes down ahead of me. Do you feel it? The white knuckling? I try so hard, but I can't quite find my own salvation. And yet there's no one strong enough to pick me up and put me in the pool. Do you feel it? Do you hear it? And the very next words of Jesus. He doesn't rebuke the man. He doesn't say try harder. He doesn't say come up with a better plan. What does he say? Get up. What? What? Here we have a man clearly in need of help, clearly trying to save himself, and Jesus says, get up. The man doesn't ask Jesus to heal him. He doesn't have any faith in Jesus. Jesus just heals him. This is a perfect example that healing is by grace alone, not effort. Jesus doesn't heal those who try hard enough. He just heals. And so the question is, what does this tell us about Jesus? Why does he do this particular healing in this particular way? 
And I want to say the first reason is to show that healing is by grace and not works. Healing is by grace and not works. And this is going to connect with the second reason that Jesus heals in this way, which I'll talk about in a second, which is very related, that healing is not through legalism. Healing is not by keeping the law perfectly. It is not just for the holier than thou. That's not how the grace of God flows into the world. So Jesus is actually, I'll say, picking a fight by healing this man. But he's also healing this man by grace alone. Two things we have to love and celebrate about the gospel and the good news of Jesus and who he is. So he says, great, I understand, I hear your excuse of why you haven't experienced healing, and I just want to say it doesn't work like that anymore. You don't need magic. What's he saying? You need me. So, at this point, I want, to take, I want you to take out your piece of paper that I wrote here, and I want to try to prove to you <laughs> that one of the main things Jesus is trying to do in this passage, in this encounter, is to put to death what we call now legalism. I don't want you to tune off because you've heard the word legalism, or I don't want you to turn off because you've never heard the word legalism. This is just a term, and I'm going to read what it is, but that is for those who keep the law well, okay? That that's what it means to be a follower of God, keep God's law well. But you could also have legalism in a non-God way. It could be those should get the benefits who keep the law of the land best or keep the cultural, traditional laws best. It's those people that deserve the reward. That's... All legalism. So, uh, this little is an excerpt from a pastor and writer named Charles Swindoll. And I just wanted to read it to you. And I printed it out so that you wouldn't tune out while I was reading. And I want you to put this in your notes, in your notebook. And I want you to talk about that if you're in a cohort. If you're not in a cohort, I want you to talk about that with a friend. If you don't have any friends, I want you to call me and we'll talk about it. And the main reason is the very first line. Who is prone to legalism? The answer everyone. If you're a human being or a robot, you are prone to legalism. The only people that aren't are non-robot, non-human, something else's. I don't even know what those are. The second best guess I have to what a human being is is that they're a robot. AI would be prone to legalism. Everyone. It's in the human DNA because it's connected to the fall from grace that happened when we rejected God in the garden and didn't turn to him but turned to our own effort our own wisdom to try to experience our own salvation okay so it's in everyone so don't don't just think of the people in your life that this best describes think of yourself so let me read this i love that he starts by saying he himself And this is one of the most sort of uh, famous, influential pastors of the last 60 years. He, He writes this, The quintessential legalists of Jesus' day were the Pharisees, a brotherhood of experts in religion. And that's who we're talking about when he says the Jews. Legalism is an enemy. 
I declare that not just on the, that just not just on the basis of Scripture, I have discovered it and its spirit smothering capacity through through experience. As a young believer seeking companions to share my spiritual journey with, I found myself surrounded by a group of legalists. And without realizing it, I began to embrace their views. I started gauging the quality of my spiritual life and the lives of others by a list of do's and don'ts, measuring everyone's worth in terms of performance and achievement. I wanted to pursue spiritual excellence, but I thought I could do it on my own terms, as though righteousness depended completely upon my efforts. Instead of experiencing greater joy in my relationship with Christ, I became critical and judgmental. I gradually turned into a harsh, negative, rigid spirit. Freedom was gone. Worship was flat. Service was drudgery. I didn't realize it at the time, but that environment of legalism was smothering. Because legalism is so subtle, a silent killer, we need to understand our enemy before we confront it. We need to know what it is, how it appears, and why it is wrong. So what is legalism? Legalism is the establishment of standards carefully selected by people for a purpose of celebrating human achievement under the guise of pleasing God. Legalism is righteousness as defined by humans who frequently cite God as the source of the standard, but in reality the standards come from culture, tradition, and most frequently the personal preferences of those who maintain positions of power or influence. Legalism is based on lists. Legalists love their lists. If you do keep every item on the list of do's and don'ts, you're deemed spiritually acceptable. But if you don't follow the prescribed standard, you are judged unworthy of God's favor and others' approval. Naturally, legalists always think they know how God judges, and they are more than willing to act on His behalf. Flip it over. So how does legalism appear? Legalism almost always adorns itself in the regal robes of religious garb. And it brandishes the credentials of religious organizations. Now, I'd just add, this is somebody writing from a different part of the country um, with a slightly different experience. He's an older man. I would say religious organizations, I'd even say, or political organizations. Political organizations are becoming increasingly religious in nature. This is not to condemn Christian organizations or the clothes they wear. I am merely pointing out that legalists are drawn to them and have successfully infiltrated churches, missions, parachurch organizations, charities, and schools. When they do, they use religious trappings to convince others of their own agendas or that their own agendas have God's approval. Eventually, followers begin to fear the disapproval of the leaders who become more and more visible and controlling as the Lord fades into obscurity. So why is legalism wrong? Legalism denies God's grace. We just said Jesus is making a point. Healing is by grace. And presumes to earn his favor through deeds. It is a man-made righteousness that exalts humanity rather than the Lord. Legalism provides or produces either pride or depression. Read that again. Legalism produces either pride or depression in the people under its spell. Pride for those who keep the lists to their own satisfaction. Depression for those who recognize their utter inability to keep the list perfectly. Criticism is the primary motivation. 
The goal of legalism is to give as much criticism as possible and to avoid receiving it at all cost. Legalism is wrong because it produces in people what the Lord desires least. Pride, self-loathing, hypocrisy, and self-righteousness. I wanted you to have this because we're all prone to legalism. Perhaps even more so because we're sitting in a room like this, wanting to please God, wanting to do what the tradition of our childhood told us to do. It's not all of us, but that's some of the reasons why we are, some of us are in the room. So how can I know if I'm falling into this legalism? Well, let's look at the example of the chief legalists of the day, the Pharisees. And look at what Jesus is doing by healing this man without even telling him his name, without even this man asking him to help him, just to prove a point that healing comes by grace and grace alone, not by works. Okay, so let's look deeper. So, How do I know that Jesus is definitely picking a fight? <laughs> Why do I say that? And I mean that in the best possible way. You can pick a fight for a good reason. Just ask my family. I'm picking fights all the time. Great reason. (laughs) That was my mom who was laughing, by the way. Because I do pick fights. But unlike Jesus, my motivations aren't always perfect. So why does he pick a fight to make his kingdom announcement that my kingdom is a kingdom of grace, not a kingdom of works? How do I know that? Okay, number one. He seeks out this group of disabled people on the Sabbath. Everyone knows about this pool party. And everybody knows who's hanging out there. And on the Sabbath, Jesus is very aware, very aware that on the Sabbath you're not supposed to do any work. The Sabbath was like the biggest rule for the Jews at this time. And continues to be. The Sabbath would have been Saturday. And you are not to do anything. There was like rules about picking up, and that will be important here, a certain amount of weight. You're not supposed to pick up anything over a certain amount of weight. You're definitely not supposed to do any work. You're supposed to rest, reflect on God, but definitely not work. In fact, it doesn't even really matter if you reflect on God or not. Just don't work kind of what Sabbath became. And so on the Sabbath, Jesus comes into the town. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he walks to the pool where all the people in need of healing are. You think he knows what he's doing? This is premeditated. This isn't accidental. You don't just accidentally walk by this pool. You go out of your way to get there, and he's doing it on the Sabbath. He's going to pick a fight. So then what does he do? He heals just one of them. Could you imagine being all the others? Maybe they hadn't been there 38 years. Maybe they'd been there longer. Maybe they'd been there less. They were all there to get healed, and Jesus only heals one of them. That's weird. If his main purpose was to show that the kingdom brings healing, he would have healed more than one, I think. He heals just one. He must have something else in mind. He's picking a fight. Okay, third thing. 
He doesn't heal a blind man. He doesn't heal a sick man. He heals a lame man. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Okay. If he had healed a blind man, the blind man would have, would have seen. Oh my goodness, I can see. Is it work to see on the Sabbath? No. I think he picks this particular type of disability to heal because he knows what's going to happen next. Imagine if you hadn't been able to walk for 38 years and all of a sudden your legs are healed. You're going to be walking all over town. And Jesus tells him something else. He doesn't say, go walk. He says, very specifically, make sure you bring your mat with you. Roll it up. Carry it with you. What was not legal on the Sabbath? And Jesus knew this. Carrying a mat. Too heavy. Broke the rules. Here's a man walking all over town, stretching out his legs that he hasn't used for 38 years. Chances are he's going to get noticed because he's carrying his mat because Jesus told him to. And even though he doesn't know his name, he says, whoever healed me, I'll do what he says. So Jesus picks a particular man and gives him a particular command that he knows will lead to the man being stopped by the legalists. And eventually, it'll get back that it was Jesus who did it, who worked on the Sabbath and healed on the Sabbath. So interesting. That's why my cohort helped me see this as we studied this text. Why do they keep making such a big deal about the picking up of the mat? Jesus says, pick up your mat, verse 8. The religious leaders say, the law prohibits you from picking up your mat on the Sabbath. They don't say from walking, it's picking up the mat. And then he replied, the man who healed me told me to pick up my mat. <laughs> it's like pick up your mat just keeps coming up over and over and over and over again. That is how this man broke the law. The religious law of his day. By picking up his mat. What a strange thing to get in trouble for. Being so excited so obedient to pick up your mat because you've been healed after 38 days. To get in trouble for that, doesn't that seem to miss the Spirit of God, the ethos of God? That's right. Legalism always misses the heart of God. And Jesus, I think, by picking this particular man who's been sick for so long, who the thing he will get in trouble for is holding a mat is to show how ludicrous it is to worship God by just keeping these strange religious Sabbath laws to the T. God's heart is a heart of a healer, not a law keeper. So Jesus goes after them. And this is exactly why they want to kill him. The scriptures say, because he was doing these things, but not just doing these things, doing these things on the Sabbath. If he had done it the next day, no problem, but on the Sabbath. 
And all of this absurdity is now coming together in this confrontation that then happens. They eventually find out that it's Jesus. They go to Jesus and they confront him and they say, how dare you break our most sacred law, the Sabbath. And you call yourself a teacher, you call yourself a rabbi, you call yourself a spiritual guru. Jesus said, no, that's what you called me. I'm the son of my father in heaven. I only do what I see him doing, and he's still working, even today. So I'm working today. He picks a fight. And he picks a fight by going after their golden cow, the Sabbath. There's a lot of other laws that they had that they could have broken, but he knew this is the one to break if he really wants to get their attention. Don't mess with two things, Texas or the Sabbath. (laughs) Definitely not the Sabbath. And I want to say this. We can look at this and we can say, oh, that's so ancient, that's so other, that's, we don't have anything like that. Yes, we do. Every community, every organization, every religious group has a golden cow. It's that law or that thing, which is a good thing. I want to make this clear. Sabbath is not a bad thing. That was God's idea. God, God worked for six days and he rested on the seventh day and said, I want you to rest too in your good work. So it's not a bad thing. It's just taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. That's what it means to make a golden cow. Every human community has a good thing that they've turned into a golden cow that if you break that one law, that one tradition, that one cultural uh, connectivity, then you have offended particularly the leaders of that community, organization, religious group. So I'm trying to think, what are those things? <laughs> I just want you to know these are meant to be slightly funny because I do think Jesus is trying to be cheeky, highlighting how absurd it is that they're upset that this man walked after 38 years. So I'm going to say these things. I'm not trying to be sort of prophetic. I'm trying to be funny. (laughs) This is like, get the laugh track ready, Joseph. Just throw that laugh track on for the live stream. Okay. So for those of you maybe grown up in a Presbyterian background, Presbyterians love order. Order is so important. So for a Presbyterian, it's like Jesus purposefully showing up late when he's supposed to preach that day at the church. Just to mess with them a little bit. Just to say, do you worship order or do you worship me? Laugh track, hit it. Okay, go, okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) No Presbyterians in the room, that's okay. Okay. Um, Perhaps, for those of you who grew up in a Catholic background, communion is such an important central thing we do communion every week here it's very important it's a very good thing jesus said to do this but it has taken on a flavor in certain streams of christianity and catholicism would be one of them where it has almost superseded jesus himself i know this because i've been to catholic weddings i think i'm a fairly devoted follower of jesus and christian yet i am not able to receive communion So when I walk up, if you've had this experience, because I'm not in good standing with the church, the Catholic church, 
I go up and I, get, I receive a blessing. So I cross my arms like this. Have you had this experience? And I receive a blessing. So I thought the funny thing that Jesus might do just to pick a fight would be if he showed up to a Catholic Mass and he walked up. And everyone's very excited for him to receive communion, which would be strange in a number of ways. But to walk up and instead of receiving communion, he crosses his arms. I'm not in good standing with the church. What? Just to highlight, maybe something's off about how we follow this good thing in real life. Okay, so then I said, we can't just throw stones at others. We've got to throw stones at ourselves. What would be the golden cow of Sedaris? This is a tough one, because we pretty much are a perfect church. So, <laughs> Let me think about that one for a second. So I thought, hmm, maybe, just maybe, what it would be is, I mean, we love, it's a good thing, connection, conversation, people being known and seen. So what if Jesus walks in during our four-minute conversation and like a minute in starts his sermon? Wait a minute, Jesus. We've got four minutes of conversation, not one, not 30 seconds. What are you doing? We'll hit the laugh track. That's the funny thing. So what is it? This is, a, this is something you can maybe talk about in your cohort this week. What are those things that may, maybe we haven't gotten there yet, but maybe another 10 years of this, and I could see at Sedaris us taking a good thing and putting it actually ahead of God himself. What might be those things for us? But then I said it's not just religious organizations. It could be communities or a culture. And one of the unique things about Seattle in particular, and I'm talking about the west side, there is a very distinct culture. And I think there's, there's sort of laws and unwritten laws about how we are as a Seattle people. And these are, again, meant to be funny, but what would be the golden cows of Seattle? Well, we renamed our arena where, you know, the Kraken now play. We got rid of the basketball team for some reason, but now we got a hockey team, and we renamed the arena Climate Pledge Arena. So we got a temple to the climate. We've got other unwritten rules and laws, which are good, actually. I'm, not, I'm pro-climate. I'm like, God made it all. We should protect it. Absolutely. But we worship it in a sense. So I was thinking the funny thing Jesus might do this is so controversial. <laughs> he may just show up and pull into that parking lot in a big old truck with really bad exhaust manifold or something like that, and it's just pumping smoke <laughs> out, of, out of the backside. And, and, and he just might, he just might be playing country music <laughs> with his windows down. And he might just be drinking uh, Coca-Cola. That's right. With sugar in it, not the diet. He'd get taxed for that. He would. But he'd pay the tax. And he'd show up just, 
just maybe, just to pick a fight, saying, do you love the creation more than the creator? Maybe he'd do that. He probably wouldn't, (laughs) but it's interesting to think about. What are the good things that we've made the ultimate things? Have we missed the creator in our love for the creation? Every community culture has a tradition that they might hold up as a golden cow. And Jesus says, stop worshiping the law, even if it's a good law, and worship the lawgiver, which is me, Jesus says. I only do what I see the Father doing, and he's working today. And so he told me to work today, and so I healed today. What do you want? Healing or the Sabbath? I mean, think of how absurd that question is, but that's basically what Jesus is saying. What do you want? Healing or the Sabbath? And it says the Jews wanted to kill him all the more. You can leave your healing at home. We want the Sabbath. It's the thing that gives us control. It's the thing that we can have power through. We don't want your healing. We want the Sabbath. What do you want? Do you want healing? Or do you want something else? My father is still working, verse 17. So I'm still working. Even on the Sabbath. God and I are one. So I decide what is lawful, what is desirable by Yahweh, my Father, not you, Jesus says. You don't decide. I do. So he's really revealing his authority. He's rewriting the interpretation of the law. Not the first time he did this. Sermon on the Mount, other places. He's saying, me and God, we're both the lawmakers. So I think it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. Basically, you could say it this way. Who owns the Sabbath? The Jews, the religious leaders, do they own the Sabbath? Or does God own the Sabbath? Okay, so strangely enough, this is an episode about legalism, about religious people who want to play God. So what takeaways can we have from that? First, I want to say, and I've already said, I just want to reiterate, this does not imply in any way that breaking the Sabbath is no big deal. It is a big deal. It's one of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus is not contradicting his Father, but he is revealing the sinfulness in those who applied the Ten Commandments. So God still desires obedience. Don't don't hear me wrong. He still desires obedience, but he desires life more. So if your obedience is not leading to life, or if your obedience is not flowing out of life, your obedience, God will say in his word, is like filthy rags to the Father. It's not a sweet smell to him, your obedience. 
if it's not leading to your life or not flowing from life in him. It's a stench to him. But he still desires obedience. God has done and is doing so much more than giving us a law to follow. Let me say that again. God has done and is doing so much more than just giving us a law to follow. Laws are meant to lead to life, not the other way around. Life doesn't lead to more laws. So reducing God to the simplest set of moral rules angers God. Why? Thinking that God is just the one who has given us some laws to follow. Why, does, why do you think that angers God? It's so belittling. You think that's all I am? It's just somebody who gave you some laws to follow? It's... it's I had this thought, like, it's kind of like treating God like the DMV. You know, legalists are kind of like those at the, the, if you work at the DMV, this it might not be you. I'm just saying, if you had that experience, I don't even know if you have to go in anymore. I apologize if you work there. Great institution. But, like, you go in and you forgot to, like, check a box or... And they send you to the back of the line, try again, get another number. And I'm like, I'm right here. I could answer your question. We could check that box together. But there is this strange thing that happens that those that love the check boxes and the laws and every minuteness, that it gives them a sense of control. And God's like, that's so belittling to me. I'm so much more than a law. Why don't, why don't you talk to me? Why don't you ask me what I'm doing here? Why don't we have a real relationship? So if your conception of God is as small as a list of things to do and not to do, you're silly. It's silly to think that. And I think God's saying through Jesus to the Pharisees, you act like such serious people You're not serious people. You're flat people. You seriously think that the Father wouldn't want healing to happen on the Sabbath? That that's why He gave you the Sabbath? Let's get serious. So, to think such small thoughts about God is not good. He's so much more than a list of do this and don't do that. And so if you're feeling convicted in any way or you're feeling like, I wonder if I do that, and if, I just want you to know, there's hope here. God's given us His Word to help us break free from that. That is a chain that God wants to break for you so that you can experience freedom in Christ for your obedience to His perfect plan and mission that He has set before you. Not so that you can do whatever you want, 
but so that you can do what he wants and not be chained to those wrong impressions of him as just a small-minded nitpicker. So if that's you, here's the remedy. Now, if you just said in your mind, that's not me, you need to pay extra close attention because you're blind to the fact that you might struggle with this because we all have this in us. It's human nature. So if you didn't think of yourself when I said, if you're thinking, then you really need to think. (laughs) Just, it's okay. We're all in this boat together. So what's the remedy for legalism? The remedy for legalism is not less legalism. (laughs) Huh, what does he mean by that? The remedy for legalism is not me teaching you less or challenging you less to obey the creator and maker of the world. That is not the remedy. I just think I need to teach a little bit less about the law of God and about his desire for our life. No, that is not the remedy. That is not the remedy. The remedy is something categorically other than the law. So we want to teach... Not just me teaching you, but us teaching each other. We want to teach each other to stress the goodness and gracious nature of the triune God. To stress that Jesus is still working. Because the Father is still working. What a gracious God that He is not far off sitting somewhere waiting for it to all play out, but He's engaged with us. This is the nature of and the goodness of God. This is His character. This is the remedy for legalism. And by the way, it's also the remedy for the opposite of legalism, which is called antinomianism, which is anti-law. That's the other ditch you can fall in, which says God has no law. He has nothing He wants me to do. That's not true either. So it's the remedy for both legalism and antinomianism those who stress the law in an unhealthy way, and those who de-stress the law in an unhealthy way. The way forward, the remedy, is to teach and sing about the glorious nature of God and His goodness and His grace, His mercy, His cross, His resurrection, His sending of the Spirit, His being with us in every moment so that we might know what the Father wants us to do by asking Him and leaning into it and Him giving us the power to do it. That's the remedy. Not just a little less of this or a little more of that. That's just another form of legalism. God wants you to find freedom, the freedom to obey out of sheer delight for giving you duty. Can you imagine that the God that created all of this has given us responsibility? What a delight to know that God and to know that he believes in us more than we believe in ourselves, that we might fulfill his purposes in the world, to delight in in our duty is where God wants to get us to. So, this brings me back then. The original design for God giving us Shabbat, which is the Hebrew word for Sabbath, for giving us Shabbat, which means rest. Why does He want to give us rest? 
Another translation for Shabbat is to cease striving or working. Why did God give us that? Why did he rest on the seventh day? Was he tired? No. He saw that it was good, and then he made humanity. It was very good, and he delighted in his work. And he says, I'm not tired. I could keep going. But I said, let's rest. Let's cease from the striving and enjoy what we've, what we've worked for. That's why he wants us to Shabbat, to enjoy what he has given us and what we have worked with him toward. And the legalist mindset strikes at the heart of this joy because it wants you to keep striving even on Shabbat. You see that? Are you sure you're not picking up too much weight? Strive to know. Work at the Shabbat. Be the best Shabbatter you can be. No, that's, that's counter to the whole idea of Shabbat. It is to rest in. Yes, you don't need to keep working because you can rest in the fact that God fills the gap. The rest of the world might work seven days, but we know God is our provider and He'll take our work and multiply it in such a way that we know we'll be good even if we rest and enjoy what we've worked for with God. Not the legalists. They're striving. They don't trust God. They don't trust what? That the work is finished. Let me say that again. They don't trust that the work is finished. Does anybody's words pop into your head when I say that? Christ on the cross, perhaps? What did he say? It is finished. The work of salvation, the work of forgiveness of sin, the work of washing you clean, it is finished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to be a legalist, to say that if I follow the law, then it might be finished, is the opposite of Shabbat. It is to strive to save yourself. And Jesus said, I've already saved you. That's why I came to save you. In Christ alone, through his sacrifice alone, through the power of the resurrection alone, it's enough. That's what Jesus came to reveal. It's enough. I'm enough. So legalism is a silent killer, Swindoll said. It's like carbon monoxide. You can't smell it. You don't know it's killing you. So if you come to realize that you're in a community or in a friend group or in a discipling relationship where the carbon monoxide of legalism is being pumped out, I suggest that you get far away from that community, that discipleship group, because you might not realize it, but it's silently killing your joy in Christ. I mean, I meet with a lot of people. Part of my job. I love it. But it's sad to me to see some of the most dedicated people who have no joy in knowing it is finished. Christ has healed us of our sin. The disease that's rotting us to the core, it's finished. To have no joy in that, but to feel like you have to keep working, working, striving, it never ceases. You have no Shabbat. 
And Jesus is actually saying, I want you to have Shabbat, so get up, take your mat, let's go. It's His grace that wants to remove you from that legalist mindset. Okay, I said I'd come back to it. One final matter. The blessing bestowed upon the broken man. This is so cool. Even though I don't think this is the primary reason that John wrote this story, it's a true story. So even though the reason Jesus went on the Sabbath to that pool party, and even though Jesus picked only one man, and he picked a man who he knew would walk all over town with his mat like he wasn't supposed to do, even though that man still got healed. Amen? You don't have to know why God chose you, why He healed you to experience His blessing. Just say, thank you, God. Like, He didn't even tell this guy what his name was. But He sought him out and He said, who are you? I'm Jesus. So, it's not irrelevant that Jesus healed this man. We are a part of God's cosmic plan, and we don't exactly know how we fit into it, but we should just be glad we're a part of it. Like, don't withhold your acceptance of God's healing just because you don't understand His primary motivation. Like, why, why, why'd you pick me? Like, what, what are you doing? Just say, thank you. And say, I'd like more of that, please. Look at verse se- one last exegetical note. Verse 7. Look at this. Look at this. This is beautiful. Remember I said, write it in your notes. The disabled man answered Jesus saying, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool, and so I miss out. And then when the Pharisees find the man walking around with his mat, verse 12, what do they say to him? Who is this man who told you to pick up your mat? They're saying, who is this man who healed you? I think there's a point here. John's saying, Jesus is the man. He's the man. He's the man. And this man, this disabled man, ran into the man, was chosen by the man, was healed by the man. And for the rest of this life, I guarantee you, this disabled man, who's no longer disabled, he's healed, will talk about Jesus and say, He's that guy. He's the man. He's the one. He's the healer. He's the provider. And then he hopefully came to know him as the savior of the world. So in this sequence of events, we have an all-important truth. The effects of an encounter with Jesus are not conditional either on our understanding of them or why he's chosen us over that chap next to us. Which is to say, to ask too many questions, and I, you know we're all about questions here at Sedera, so I'm not saying don't ask any, but to ask too many questions may result in missing out on the blessing. Don't let your questioning get in the way of your receiving Grace. So you can keep questioning, but don't say, I can't receive it until I understand it. Receive it, and the receiving will lead to the understanding, okay? So Jesus asked the man, do you want to be healed? Jesus is asking you today. 
Do you want to be healed? It may seem like an obvious yes, but is it? 38 years is a long time to have a really good excuse for not being healed. Is it easy to give up our best excuses? What will I do? Where will I go? You could imagine him thinking, if I were healed. What would life look like if this weren't holding me down? Do you want to be healed? Ah, It's a complicated question. You see, a pile of suffering, a pile of shame, a pile of guilt, a pile of regret, a pile of addiction, they all suck, but they're heavy, and they make for a great anchor. Jesus is offering you the same question. Do you want me to take that away for you? If you say yes, Jesus will say the same thing to you he said to the man at the pool. It's gone. It's finished. The shame is gone. The guilt is gone. The regret is gone. I can help you through that addiction. I can help you through that suffering. New suffering will come. New hardship will come. But I can take that from you. Get up. Let's go. Live your life again. Do you want to be healed? I want you to ask yourself that question as we sing today. I'm going to pray. And we're going to have a couple people kind of near the back, back pillar back here, back corner back here. They're just available if you want somebody to pray with you. We're going to have them available. We always have people available after the service. So we'll stay up here after the service as well. But if you want somebody to pray with you during the service, feel free to go back there. And we can pray for healing, for Christ to take away some of that baggage that you're using as an anchor. Do you want to get up and go? Let's pray.